0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Republic, Book 8, Part 1 Well then, Glaucon, we've agreed to the following. If a city is to achieve the height of good government, wives must be in common. Children and all their education must be in common. Their way of life, whether in peace or war, must be in common. And their kings must be those among them who have proved to be best, both in philosophy and in warfare. We have agreed to that, he said. Moreover, we also agreed that as soon as the rulers are established, they will lead the soldiers and settle them in the kind of dwellings we described which are in no way private, but common to all. And we also agreed, if you remember, what kind of possessions they will have. Well, I remember that we thought that none of them should acquire any of the things that the other rulers now do, but that, as athletes of war and guardians, they should receive their yearly upkeep from the other citizens, as a wage for their guardianship, and look after themselves and the rest of the city. That's right. But since we have completed this discussion, let's recall the point at which we began the digression that brought us here, so that we can continue on the same path from where we left off. That isn't difficult, for, much the same as now, you were talking as if you had completed the description of the city. You said that you would class both the city you described and the man who is like it as good, even though, as it seems, you had a still finer city and man to tell us about. But, in any case, You said that, if this city was the right one, the others were faulty. You said, if I remember, that there were four types of constitution remaining that are worth discussing, each with faults that we should observe, and we should do the same for the people who are like them. Our aim was to observe them all, agree which man is best and which worst, and then determine whether the best is happiest and the worst most wretched, or whether it's otherwise. I was asking you which four constitutions you had in mind when Polemicus and Adamantus interrupted. And that's when you took up the discussion that led here. That's absolutely right. Well, then, like a wrestler, give me the same hold again. And when I ask the same question, try to give the answer you were about to give before. If I can. I'd at least like to hear what four constitutions you meant. That won't be difficult since they're the ones for which we have names. First, there's the constitution praised by most people, namely the Cretan or Laconian. The second, which is also second in the praise it receives, is called oligarchy and is filled with a host of evils. The next in order, and antagonistic to it, is democracy. And finally, there is genuine tyranny, surpassing all of them, the fourth and last of the diseased cities. Or can you think of another type of constitution, I mean another whose form is distinct from these? Dynasties and purchased kingships and other constitutions of that sort, which one finds no less among the barbarians than among the Greeks, are somewhat intermediate between these four. In any event, many strange ones are indeed talked about. And do you realize that of necessity there are as many forms of human character as there are of constitutions? Or do you think that constitutions are born, quote, from ochre rock, end quote, and not from the characters of the people who live in the cities governed by them, which tip the scales, so to speak, and drag the rest along with them? No, I don't believe they come from anywhere else. Then, if there are five forms of city, there must also be five forms of the individual soul. Of course. Now, we've already described the one that's like aristocracy, which is rightly said to be good and just, we have. Then mustn't we next go through the inferior ones? Namely, the victory-loving and honor-loving, which corresponds to the Laconian form of constitution, followed by the oligarchic, the democratic, and the tyrannical, so that, having discovered the most unjust of all, we can oppose him to the most just, In this way, we can complete our investigation into how pure justice and pure injustice stand with regard to the happiness or wretchedness of those who possess them, and either be persuaded by Thrasymachus to practice injustice or by the argument that is now coming to light to practice justice. That's absolutely what we have to do. Then, just as we began by looking for the virtues of character in a constitution— before looking for them in the individual, thinking that they'd be clearer in the former, shouldn't we first examine the honor-loving constitution? I don't know what other name there is for it, but it should be called either timocracy or timarchy. Then shouldn't we examine an individual who's related to that constitution, and, after that, oligarchy and an oligarchic person, and democracy and a democratic person? And finally, having come to a city under a tyrant and having examined it, shouldn't we look into a tyrannical soul, trying in this way to become adequate judges of the topic we proposed to ourselves? That would be a reasonable way for us to go about observing and judging at any rate. Well then, let's try to explain how Timocracy emerges from aristocracy. Or is it a simple principle that the cause of change In any constitution is civil war breaking out within the ruling group itself, but that if this group, however small it is, remains of one mind, the constitution cannot be changed. Yes, that's right. How, then, Glaucon, will our city be changed? How will civil war arise, either between the auxiliaries and the rulers or within either group? Or do you want us to be like Homer and pray to the Muses to tell us, quote, how civil war first broke out? And shall we say that they speak to us in tragic tones, as if they were in earnest, playing and jesting with us, as if we were children? What will they say? Something like this. It is hard for a city composed in this way to change, but everything that comes into being must decay. Not even a constitution such as this will last forever. It, too, must face dissolution. And this is how it will be dissolved. All plants that grow in the earth, and also all animals that grow upon it, have periods of fruitfulness and barrenness of both soul and body, as often as the revolutions complete the circumferences of their circles. These circumferences are short for the short-lived, and the opposite for their opposites. Now, the people you have educated to be leaders in your city, even though they are wise, still won't, through calculation together with sense perception, hit upon the fertility and barrenness of the human species, but it will escape them. And so they will at some time beget children when they ought not to do so. For the birth of a divine creature, there is a cycle comprehended by a perfect number. For a human being, it is the first number in which are found root and square increases, comprehending three lengths and four terms, of elements that make things like and unlike, that cause them to increase and decrease, and that render all things mutually agreeable and rational in their relations to one another. Of these elements, four and three, married with five, give two harmonies when thrice increased. One of them is a square, so many times a hundred. The other is of equal length, one way but oblong. One of its sides is 100 squares of the rational diameter of 5, diminished by 1 each, or 100 squares of the irrational diameter, diminished by 2 each. The other side is 100 cubes of 3. The whole geometrical number controls better and worse births. And when your rulers, through ignorance of these births, join brides and grooms at the wrong time, the children will be neither good-natured nor fortunate. The older generation will choose the best of these children, but they are unworthy nevertheless. And when they acquire their father's powers, they will begin, as guardians, to neglect us muses. First, they will have less consideration for music and poetry than they ought. Then they will neglect physical training, so that your young people will become less well-educated in music and poetry. Hence. Rulers chosen from among them won't be able to guard well the testing of the golden, silver, bronze, and iron races, which are Hesiod's and your own. The intermixing of iron with silver and bronze with gold that results will engender lack of likeness and unharmonious inequality, and these always breed war and hostility wherever they arise. Civil war, we declare, is always and everywhere of this lineage." and will declare that what the Muses say is right. It must be, since they're Muses. What do the Muses say after that? Once civil war breaks out, both the iron and bronze types pull the Constitution towards money-making and the acquisition of land, houses, gold and silver, while both the gold and silver types, not being poor but by nature rich or rich in their souls, lead the Constitution towards virtue and the old order. And thus, striving and struggling with one another, they compromise on a middle way. They distribute the land and houses as private property, enslave and hold as serfs and servants, those whom they previously guarded as free friends and providers of upkeep, and occupy themselves with war and with guarding against those whom they've enslaved. I think that is the way this transformation begins. Then, isn't this constitution a sort of midpoint between aristocracy and oligarchy? Absolutely. Then, if that's its place in the transformation, how will it be managed after the change? Isn't it obvious that it will imitate the aristocratic constitution in some respects, and oligarchy in others, since it's between them, and that it will also have some features of its own? That's right. The rulers will be respected. The fighting class will be prevented from taking part in farming, manual labor, or other ways of making money. It will eat communally and devote itself to physical training and training for war, and in all such things won't the Constitution be like the aristocratic one? Yes. On the other hand, it will be afraid to appoint wise people as rulers on the grounds that they are no longer simple and earnest, but mixed, and will incline towards spirited and simpler people who are more naturally suited for war than peace. It will value the tricks and stratagems of war and spend all its time making war. Aren't most of these qualities peculiar to it? Yes. Such people will desire money just as those in oligarchies do, passionately adoring gold and silver in secret. They will possess private treasuries and storehouses where they can keep it hidden, and have houses to enclose them, like private nests, where they can spend lavishly either on women or on anyone else they wish. That's absolutely true. They'll be mean with their own money since they value it, and are not allowed to acquire it openly. But they'll love to spend other people's money because of their appetites. They'll enjoy their pleasures in secret, running away from the law like boys from their father. For since they've neglected the true muse, that of discussion and philosophy, and have valued physical training more than music and poetry, they haven't been educated by persuasion, but by force. The constitution you're discussing is certainly a mixture of good and bad, Yes, it is mixed, but because of the predominance of the spirited element, one thing alone is most manifest in it, namely, the love of victory and the love of honor. Very much so. This, then, is the way this constitution would come into being, and what it would be like, for, after all, we're only sketching the shape of the constitution in theory, not giving an exact account of it, since even from a sketch we'll be able to discern the most just and the most unjust person. And, besides, it would be an intolerably long task to describe every constitution and every character without omitting any detail. That's right. Then who is the man that corresponds to this constitution? How does he come to be? And what sort of man is he? I think, said Adamantus, that he'd be very like Glaucon here, as far as the love of victory is concerned. In that respect, I said, he might be, but in the following ones I don't think his nature would be similar. Which ones? He'd be more obstinate and less well-trained in music and poetry, though he's a lover of it. And he'd love to listen to speeches and arguments, though he's by no means a rhetorician. He'd be harsh to his slaves rather than merely looking down on them as an adequately educated person does. He'd be gentle to free people, and very obedient to rulers, being himself a lover of ruling and a lover of honor. However, he doesn't base his claim to rule on his ability as a speaker or anything like that, but, as he's a lover of physical training and a lover of hunting, on his abilities and exploits in warfare and warlike activities. Yes, that's the character that corresponds to this constitution. Wouldn't such a person despise money when he's young, but love it more and more as he grows older? "'because he shares in the money-loving nature "'and isn't pure in his attitude to virtue? "'And isn't that because he lacks the best of guardians?' "'What guardian is that?' Adamantus said. "'Reason,' I said, "'mixed with music and poetry, "'for it alone dwells within the person who possesses it "'as the lifelong preserver of his virtue. "'Well put. "'That, then, is a Timocratic youth,' He resembles the corresponding city. Absolutely. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, T'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, To bow and to bend, We will not be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight till by turning, turning, we come round right.